move uh, through this period of history. I call this one a powerful partnership as we're going to watch Deborah and Barak work uh, together. Uh, the history of Judges picks up uh, this morning and it's around 1229 BC. And sadly, the children of Israel, and you'll see this over and over in uh, the book of Judges again, doing evil. And, and they're going to summarize evil as seeking false gods, engaging in perverse worship, which we talked about last week. Every time you see it, this is the implication of what's unfolding for them. And we've covered now with the, with the first three judges, that was actually 146 years of the period of the judges, which encompasses about 350 years. So you're over a third of the way through. And what happened was in, in the previous three oppressions or two oppressions that take place, you're seeing people come from outside of Israel's boundaries, so to speak, non-Canaanites, uh, people from Mesopotamia to the north, Moab to the east, and then the Philistines, which are tucked a little bit in the area, but they're coming up and attacking, and that was Shamgar dealing uh, with that uh, insurrection, I'd call that, but not oppression. And so what we've seen for over a third of judges is outside forces uh, coming in. I want us to understand a little bit of the history. So during the last 80 years of peace, uh, it's helpful to know that Egypt was very active. So they had three uh, pharaohs that were very active in military campaigns. Now, the military campaigns aren't against Israel, and they're actually not against the Canaanites. Uh, the military campaigns went from Egypt down south, worked their way all the way through Canaan as they would attack uh, mainly the Hittites and some empires that were up in Mesopotamia and above. Uh, but during that time, during that movement, God used that to contain uh, the Canaanites. As, as Israel was serving the Lord, as they followed the Lord, as, as we see in Scripture, as they obeyed his commands, it's interesting to look at history and see how God kept the nations around Israel contained because as Egypt moves through, they would have moved on the coastal side. That's the, the highway they would have taken up there, which would have been Canaanite occupied territories. And if a huge nation is moving through, well, they're going to eat crops. They're going to uh, limit what those nations and those kingdoms could do. And so Israel has these 80 years of peace and God using the natural outflow as he coordinates uh, the dates and the movement of history. But as we watch Israel regress again into idolatry, and keep in mind that idolatry was looking at other gods and gods with a, a perverse form of worship, gods that were uh, appealing to them because of the agricultural success that might come with them. As we watch them shift, Coincidentally, and I put that in quotes, we watch Egypt's campaign stop right around 1228 BC. Uh, the timing there is almost perfect. And it's at this time, Jabin of Hazar. And, and here's an interesting note. Hazar was a city that Joshua destroyed, that he came in and conquered. And if you're reading through Joshua, it's the same King Jabin, not the same king, king of the same name, who occupied that. And so what you have is after Egypt has finished their campaigns, as Israel regresses into idolatry, you have this new city because it would be only 150 some years old, maybe 200 years old, that has been rebuilt. And obviously the name Jabin is something that's passed down for kings of that region. And he rises up and he afflicts the northern tribes of Israel. And that's important to remember that he is up north 
Uh, the last oppression we saw with Ehud was down south. Moab crosses the Jordan, and they are attacking southern tribes. This is a northern oppression taking place mainly in Zebulun and Issachar. And so you're going to have their region, and this is where the oppression takes place. I want us to note something about this oppression. It is from within the land. This is Canaanite oppression. And I want to remember what God commanded Israel to do. It's important to realize what they're reaping right now. So Jabin has been able to rebuild. The city has been rebuilt. He is now powerful enough to oppress Israel. God commanded Israel when they came into the land that they were to destroy or expel all Canaanites. They were not supposed to allow them to stay. They're not supposed to be subjected to slave or servant labor. They were supposed to be killed or expelled. And really the command centered on that they were to be killed. And so I want you to realize that the third cycle of oppression comes as fruit of Israel's disobedience two centuries before. They did not do what God told them to do. And they are now reaping that fruit because this was a city that was defeated and destroyed, and Israel allowed it to be reoccupied, rebuilt up, and King Jabin, and and understand, I think scripture tells us on purpose, Sisera didn't live in Hazar. He lived in another town, city, about 20 miles away, just to show you that King Jabin ruled over more than one city. During that time, the Canaanites often were city-states, but he obviously captured or covered more region. And so what we see now is oppression building from the disobedience, the fruit of disobedience, and now we have an oppression. And then notice the word mighty oppression. This was not light affliction. Jabin was a heavy-handed ruler. So they pressed hard down on it. It's a lockdown state. This is a very difficult time. And so Jabin, with a very capable general named Sisera, afflicts that northern region for those 20 years, from 1229 mainly to 1209 B.C. And of course, Israel cries to the Lord about the heavy oppression and about their superior military might. The 900 chariots that are mentioned, the reason that's mentioned is because Israel doesn't have 900 chariots. As we read through the poem that uh, song, poem slash song that Deborah writes, she asks a question, is there a shield and a spear to be found among 40,000? In Israel, and the idea of the song is we're low on weapons and they've got advanced technology. That's fighting a war where someone has tanks and you've got muzzle loaders, and, and it doesn't make sense for Israel. So, there the oppression comes in, and what God then uses is a powerful partnership between Deborah and Barak to liberate again his people from what we have to realize is a self inflicted oppression. Each of them are going to play a vital role. Uh, the lead is definitely Deborah. She's the one that's gifted and instructed by God to decide the tough cases where she is sitting. And it kind of in your mind, when you say she's sitting under a tree, you think she moves to this palm tree and they name it after her and she sits out there. Most likely she lived right there and people came to her home. But she is deciding the tough cases uh, like Moses used to do. If you think about Moses and the cases came to him, uh, this is what she was doing. She was mediating uh, difficult circumstances uh, that came up. And she, she was the one that Israel turned to, to hear from God. God was working directly through here. Uh, I put a, as a note to kind of give it 
idea of how that feels for us a little bit. Uh, I find that in, in certain families, there's a central person uh, to whom everyone goes for advice. And I know on Heather's side of the family, because I have my family here, I can't pick the wise one out because then I'll get in trouble at family gatherings. But I can go on Heather's side and pick the wise sage of the family. And it was her mother. Uh, I don't think her dad's going to listen to the sermon, so I think I'm safe doing that. Uh, but it was definitely her mom. Uh, and, and people would come from all over. They would visit, obviously, just like a normal family gatherings. But what I always enjoyed watching was every family member, extended family that would come visit, I noticed they would, they would get some time, maybe not necessarily alone, but they would talk about their life, and they would come to get her counsel. All of her family didn't always live uh, for the Lord, but they knew they could go to Heather's mom to get a biblically grounded perspective on life. And, and I share that because I think all of us can sit back and oftentimes think in our family, who is that kind of central person that people come to? And then I want you to, to tie that in to who is that spiritual central person, that wise sage that's going to give God's advice. And I want you to see this is what Deborah is doing. She was a godly woman who is receiving God's word directly, especially for those in Ephraim and the surrounding areas. And she is someone, and this is her whole characteristic, with an obvious godly connection. And I want you to recognize who she is. I I find her to be one of the more fascinating judges as I read uh, what she does and how she speaks. Uh, It's shocking how much we can emulate her because as, as you recognize, she's not the one going out and fighting the battle. She's not hurling spears. She's not killing 600 Philistines with an ox goad, but she's a woman with a godly connection. I'm going to read verses four uh, through five again. It says, and Deborah, a prophetess, and, and it's using that word for a, for a reason. She is functioning like a prophet would have function. Uh, one of the unique women that God used in this capacity, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at that time. And that word judged, again, delivered, but it's, she is the one functioning like we think in a judge, deciding what God's will is in a difficult situation. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And so I want us to realize that this time, Israel, it was clear that she spoke God's word. She's the one telling them what God is saying. She's identified as a prophetess. It means she received and relayed the direct word from God. And here's the thing that I took away. She kept to what God had to say. I'm going to go through a few illustrations. Uh, She sends to Barak and she says, hath not the Lord and I mentioned this to the kids when I was preaching camp. I think it's a, it's a helpful insight. Most translations of the Bible, when you see the word Lord and it's all in capitals, so L capital O capital R D, all capitalized, it's referencing the word Yahweh in that moment, the Hebrew translation of Yahweh. When you see Lord where it's capital L and then small O-R-D, that's Adonai, which also means Lord, but the word Yahweh is going to be translated typically in any English translation with capitals. And I want you to pick that up. It says, have not the Lord, God of Israel, commanded saying, go. And recognize this, she, throughout her whole writing, you'll find that she repetitively uses the word Yahweh, to, to emphasize this. And it was the most holy name for God that Israel would have used. And there was a reason she did this because Israel keeps slipping into idolatry. They keep having a mixed worship. In our world, we would say, well, 
You worship God that way. I worship God this way. This is what we do. Well, you can, there's many roads to heaven. We've all heard these statements. And I can imagine in Israel, this is what they're saying. Well, I'm going to worship Baal because I'll get better rain. I'll worship this because I can do what I want or I'll get my way. And we have the same thing that permeates everything today. What does Deborah say? You worship Yahweh. She's going to focus in in, in, a, in a term that Israel would have understood that there is one God. There is no other gods. There are no other deities. There are no other ways. And she really emphasizes that God, the most holy God, is speaking. And this is what he's saying. Uh, when he uh, will move, when Barak says, I'm going to only move if you go, she says he'll not get the main honor, the slaying of the leader. How does she say it? The Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, when all was arranged, she said to Barak, when, when he gets the army together, just to show you how she uses her vernacular, that she speaks what God had to say. She says, up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. What she did constantly with Barak was share God's confidence. Her assurance was always Yahweh's assurance of victory. She never puts in, I think God wants this. She says, God said this. God will do this. Okay, you don't want me, you want me along? Great, then you're not going to get the honor. God will sell him into the hands of a woman. In her song, 13b, she says this, the Lord made me to have dominion over the mighty. And as you read chapter five, you're going to see repeated phrases. I want to highlight this. It's not a main point about Deborah but she was an extremely gifted writer. Uh, some commentators think this is the best picture of Hebrew poetry in all the Old Testament. Without a doubt, she was extremely gifted. And Hebrew poetry always has a, a, a couplet kind of idea. It's going to build on each other. I'm a math brain person, so I'm, I'm wandering into territory that's beyond me in the sense of interest oftentimes. But it's very helpful to read these songs. It's going to emphasize the points. It's a very gifted song, literarily, musically, tying it all in. But she, she doesn't stutter about what God has called and enabled her to do. She said, the Lord made me to have dominion over the mighty. In other words, the Lord gave me the command. The Lord gave me the words that need to be speaked. And then I love what follows in the song to kind of illustrate how she uses that. Because the Lord called her to a task and all of Israel is not faithful to that task. And so in this song of victory, a song that we'll talk about later that's about God's glory, she starts acknowledging people who do what they're supposed to do and reprimanding those who ignored the need. 14 through 18, and actually all the way into verse 23, is her acknowledging the tribes that participated and giving a severe reprimand to those that did not. Nothing like being wrote, written into a song to be living on forever, right? No one wants to have a bad mention in a song. For 150 years, people are singing a song about how you wimped out, and that's exactly what she did. She talked about those who fought, Ephraim, Benjamin, Manassas on the west side of the Jordan, Zebulun, Issachar, Naphtali, where Zebulon and Naphtali were the majority there. And then she said about the ones who failed, Reuben, she said, they thought about it, but stayed with the sheep. What an insult, right? You thought about it, but then you kept hearing the bleeding of the sheep and you didn't come over. Manassas on the east of the Jordan near Reuben, Dan, she says they stayed with ships, meaning they didn't interrupt their business, their economy. Asher, it says, you stayed casually at home. 
You stayed at the coast, even though the battle raged in close proximity. If you look at the map, you'll see that the battle is right below Asher. Dan, who's right up there, got into the shipping business. They don't even bother going out. <coughs> some tribes aren't mentioned. You might say, why? What about Judah? What about some other ones? They're further away. The ones that are highlighted are Dan, Asher, and Manasseh because they could have easily sent troops and they didn't do it. And she speaks not in a vindictive way. What's the point? Well, one thing we realize is Israel lacks unity at this time. They are not functioning as a nation. There's a need that crops up. There's an opportunity to solve that need. They have a chance to dive in. And what does Israel do? A bunch of tribes decide they're not going to participate. I'd rather watch the sheep. I'd rather stick with my shipping. I'd rather just hang out on the beach, basically. I'm going to stay home. I'm not doing this. I don't care that it's close. I'm not moving from here. What's the point for us when we think of Deborah, though? (coughs) She's bringing commendation from God for those who fought and rebuke for those who did not. She is communicating what God wanted said. God wants to see unity in Israel, but they're ununified. You go to verse 23. This is where she zeroes in on one town. Curse ye, Miraz, said the angel of the Lord, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. When she said she has dominion over the mighty, she says God has entrusted her with helping lead Israel to overcome their enemies. And she says, curse that town that didn't send a soldier to help out. And then what follows is her portion of the song about Jael, who does side with Israel, who is not an Israelite. She's a Kenite. And she sides with Israel and does the Lord's work. And we're going to talk a little bit more about her at the end. But don't miss this as Deborah rebukes the cowards, because that's what she's basically calling those tribes. She highlights the person who does work and serve the Lord in this. She is bringing a correction for inactivity directly from God. What is my whole point with this whole long list of examples that's here? She spoke God's word to Israel. She was somebody who spoke what God wanted to be said. Are her emotions involved? Of course her emotions are involved. But that's what we're going to see next. She was vested individually, but she shared God's concern. She spoke God's word. She kept her instruction. Always the Lord says, the Lord says, this is what the Lord wants. And then next she shared God's concern. Is she empathetic to their need? It becomes obvious. She was a compassionate person to the needs of Israel. If you look at her life, and and, and I use my hands to do this, maybe it's the worst kind of map, and you have to go find a map of Israel and look at it. All the problem is happening here. Here I'm holding my hand up. Deborah is down here, 70 miles south. Ephraim is not feeling any oppression from Jabin. Jabin is oppressing these people up here. She's giving advice to the southern tribes. She's down south. Obviously, people come down south to decide cases, to talk to her. She becomes known as the voice of God in Israel. And what happens is she hears about this and she becomes vested in what's taking place up here, even though she has a ministry down south. She's judging Israel. Why should she leave the palm tree and the work that God's given her to help this tribes up north? And remember, there's not a lot of unity. And I I say that because it's important to recognize that Deborah was compassionate 
to the needs of God's people. It went beyond her own life and went beyond her circumstances. She is reacting in line with what God desired. And that's a point we're going to come back around to. How are we responding to the needs of God's people beyond our own circumstances? And then through it all, she showed God's glory. She wrote a song and then sang it with Barak. So when you see that her and Barak sang a song, she wrote it. We can see that from the wording of the song and Barak sang it, which is going to be a part of who he is. Um, after the victory that pointed to God as the provider of victory and expressed gratitude for his deliverance, and it's actually done in detail. Now, being a person who prefers a story over a poem, I thought, how can I just pick apart this poem and and show it? And then I realized it would be better for me just to read it. Uh, It's always better just to read through God's Word. I want to encourage you uh, to go back to it because it is a beautiful song of praise but also is filled with detail. So I'm going to read it and comment on it briefly uh, as I work through it. So it begins in chapter 5. Then saying Deborah (coughs) and Barak, the son of Benoam, on that day saying, verse 2, Praise ye the Lord for the avenging of Israel. In other words, who took care of this? God did. When the people willingly offered themselves, Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princes. I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. There's no doubt as you start this song, who is getting credit? Who is getting the gratitude? Who is getting the praise for all this? Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marched out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. In other words, when God moves, the earth responds. The clouds also dropped water. The mountains melted before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, and we we just talked about him, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied, and the travelers walked through byways. In other words, this was a difficult time. This was a time where you couldn't be on the main road. And remember, Egypt is running through and Jabin has now reared his ugly head and he's oppressing the people in a heavy way. And so they're hiding out. It says the inhabitants of the villages ceased. They ceased in Israel. In other words, you left unoccupied or unwalled locations and everyone's moving to a walled city. Why? Because it's not safe to be in a village without protection around you. It's not an easy time in Israel. It says, until that I, Deborah, arose, that I arose a mother in Israel. Then eight condemns Israel. They chose new gods. Then was war in the gates. Was there a shield or spear seen among 40,000 in Israel? And what she's condemning Israel for is you pick new gods and suddenly war comes up, as God promised. And then she says, and you're in war and there's no shield or, or spear to be found. It says, My heart is toward the governors of Israel that offer themselves willingly among the people. Bless you, the Lord. She's commenting on those who went to battle in what God had called them to do. It says, Speak ye that ride on white donkeys, ye, ye that sit in judgment. And this is talking about the leaders, the, the princes, and walk by the way. You would buy a white donkey because they were rare, so they were expensive. Who would ride on them? Nobility, leadership, people who were wealthy, Coming in there, and it says, They 
that are delivered from the noise of archers in the places of drawing water. And it's fascinating. You would draw water outside of town or outside the city. And if you don't hear the sound of archers, that means war is not taking place. You're not being afflicted. And so she starts talking about what God has done to restore peace again to Israel. It says, there shall they rehearse the righteous acts of the Lord. And what a right place to do it, right? Where you couldn't go draw water in safety before, you can. And that's a great place to remember what God has done. Who's freed us? God's freed us. Even the righteous acts toward the inhabitants of his villages in Israel, then shall the people of the Lord go down to the gates. And what she's saying is God has allowed us to move back into the villages, to go to the well, to draw water in peace, to be able to, to exist without fear. When are you going to attack somebody? What, when an agricultural society that needs to water their livestock yeah, bandits and armies, they would always camp out around where water was. And so if you can get to water without being attacked, that means you're safe. Goes on, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, and lead thy captivity captive, thou son of Abinoam. Then he made him that remaineth have dominion over the nobles among the people. The Lord made me have dominion over the mighty. And then we get the reprimand, the, the, the commendations and reprimand. Out of Ephraim was there a root of them against Amalek, because they had defeated the Amalekites and taken it. So they're coming up to do battle. <coughs> After thee, Benjamin, among thy people. Out of Machir came down governors, and that's the side of Manassas that came. And out of Zebulun, they that handled the pen of the writer. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, even Issachar, and also Barak. He was sent on foot into the valley. For the divisions of Reuben, there were great thoughts of heart. Why abodest thou among the sheepfolds to hear the bleedings of the flocks? For the divisions of Reuben, sorry, I jumped down, Gilead above, beyond Jordan, and why did Dan remain in ships? Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. Zebulon and Naphtali were a people that jeopard their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. The kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. That's where the valley is. <coughs> and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but the battle takes place where chariots work the best. God sends Barak with no chariots, to fight Sisera where he would love to fight on the plain. Sends him to the stronghold, the, the, the pinnacle of strength. He's going to destroy uh, Sisera. It goes on. They took no gain of money. 20, they fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. And that's actually speaking what God did. It says God intervened. What happens? The river of Kishon swept them away, which by the way, it was not rainy season. It was not flood time for the river of Kishon. That ancient river, the river of Kishon, O my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. Then were the horse hoofs broken by the means of the prancings, the prancings of their mighty ones. In other words, God sent a flood into the Kishon Valley through the river Kishon at a time when it's not supposed to flood and the horses that pull the chariot are all getting worked up and the whole thing turns over. In other words, if you are fighting this battle and you're 10,000 strong and you're going to fight the person that you've been afraid of for 20 years who has better technology than you have, you're hunting for weapons just to go fight, weapons that are less than what they have and you're going to their stronghold and you watch God send rain and flood a valley 
wiping out their advantage. Now, I want you to realize something. It wasn't like they were defeated. They had more soldiers than they did. They, they fought with foot soldiers as well. And the battle goes to the mountains. So there's still a lot of fighting to do. But you watch God destroy their pride, their idea. And one person noted is uh, he used rain. And who's the God of rain? Baal. And the God of rain for them is sending rain. In essence, God is trumping their God while he's destroying their armies. He's making quite an impression on the northern tribes of Israel. And then it says, Kershi Marah says the angel of the Lord. Kershi bitterly the inhabitants thereof because they came not to help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. And then blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber that cannot be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent. In other words, people who are nomadic. Goes on, he asked water and she gave him milk. She brought forth butter in a lordly dish. She put her hand to the nail and her right hand to the workman's hammer. And with the hammer, she smote Sisera. And then some of the, 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 the song goes, she smote off his head. Uh, every time I read about jail, it gives me a headache because I think of someone laying down. I think of a nail spike. I think of the temple. And it just, yeah, if everyone needs ibuprofen, we have some in the medicine cabinet in the kitchen there. And it goes on in a poetic way. Um, she smote off his head when she had pierced and stricken through his temples. At her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay down. At her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell down dead. In other words, she conquered him. And then it goes on in a kind of uh, mocking tone to his mother. The mother of Sisera looked out at a window and cried through the lattice, why is this chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariots? Her wise lady answered her. Yea, she returned answer to herself. Have they not sped? Have they not divided the prey to every man a damsel or two? To Sisera, a prey of divers colors, a prey of divers colors of needlework, of divers colors of needlework on both sides. Meet for the next of them that take the spoil. And then 31 is a call for God's will to be done. So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. But let them that love him be as a son when he goeth forth in his might. And then, of course, at the end of that verse, it says they had rest for 40 years. The whole point is this. She has a song that's filled with glory to God for what he has done a reprimand for those who will not participate in God's work, a severe one, one that calls them out for centuries or thousands of years now for being cowards. And then she closes with this idea. It's almost an inter intercessory prayer that commits to God's will. She highlights what it means to have a godly connection. And this is what it looks like in summary. God's word led in what she had to say. God's concern directed her emotions and God's glory was her song or her anthem. And then I have this question, and we'll have this every time we get to this. Does that describe you? Does his word lead in your conversation? It's convenient, right? Because you say, oh, well, Deborah's a prophetess. Deborah's got God talks her. She says exactly what's there. Has God talked to us? Well, he has actually in his word. We have it written down. We know what he has to say. And then you have to ask yourself, does his word lead in my conversation? Do my conversations, are they framed by God's word? Are they guided by what he has to say, by what he wants accomplished? And then you go on, does his concern direct your emotions? 
She had emotions. This is not some a Dutch lady sitting there with no expression on her face. This is somebody who cares about Israel, who's responsive, who's engaged with her community. She wants to help. She's not being stoic, but are her, are, her emotions were lined up with where God's concern is. Are our emotions in line with what God's concerns are? Do we do do we respond? Are we passionate about the things that God is passionate about? And then for her, she wrote a whole song that emphasized his glory. She sung it. She proclaimed it. And I put as his glory, your priority. It is for Deborah. She's a woman with a godly connection. <clears throat> now, obviously, when we started this as a powerful partnership. And so we'd be remiss to neglect the other side of it. Because there's a man that God uses to lead the soldiers into battle. He's a man named Barak. He's listed in Hebrews 11. If you know anything about Hebrews 11, it's the kind of hall of faith uh, that's there, the hall of fame that, that's listed. But he's a man who stumbles in trust, but was committed to a godly cause. <clears throat> and I want to kind of work through his life uh, quickly, but understand what he teaches us. He's obviously a leader that's clearly capable and commendable. Why does Deborah call him if he's not worthy uh, to do anything? She calls him to take action. And I want us to understand something. He responded to the opportunity. She sends for him 70 miles away. He lives in the middle of oppressed territory. She sent for him and he shows up to see her when, he, when, she, when she calls. And you might think, well, of course he does. This is someone to help him out. And I want us to understand what it's like to live under the thumb for 20 years. And, and all you have to do is go read a little bit of what it felt like to live in Russia when it's at the height of its communism. And you ask people there how easy it is to step up against the government that's there after 20 years of grinding oppression. How easy is it to switch what you're going to do, to change course? So what happens to people, and that's one of the reasons why governments have this grinding type of, of, of leadership, because they get control of people, not just in that moment, but they get control of their mind. They get control of their will. 20 years of heavy oppression is a soul-crushing time. And we don't need to take lightly the fact that after 20 years of that oppression, this military leader, this, this guy that's going to have been felt the pressure for 20 years, is still ready. He moved. He shows up. Yet in his readiness... In his responsiveness, sadly, we find that he regressed in trust. And this is his weakest point. He actually gives us a warning what can take place. Because he said unto her, if you'll go with me, then I will go. But if thou will not go with me, then I will not go. And he's not just making a, a, a light statement. In other words, when he showed up, Deborah says, get me Barak. Barak comes down. She says, God said, go raise an army and go, go attack him and he's going to give you the victory. It's done. It's, it's assured. In Deborah's mind, it's as good as done. That's how she's thinking. He says, I'll do that, but you leave here, you leave Ephraim, you leave your ministry, you leave your home, and you have to ride with me. You're the good luck omen. I need someone along for the ride. And then she, and it's part of who she is, she quickly agrees to it. She says, okay, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get the honor and I want us to notice something that happened. Barak fixed his confidence at the wrong level. His confidence was in Deborah. 
I'm not saying he's a man of no faith. That's why I mentioned Hebrews 11. He's obviously a man of faith. He's lifted in the hall of faith. And I'll read that verse later on. You'll see he's around David. He's around Samuel. He's around the prophets. He's in there. But what happened in this moment was that his faith was at the wrong level. There's no denying that Deborah was God's prophetess, his spokesperson at this time. Yet she was not to be Israel's confidence. You drop your level of confidence, your bedrock, down to humanity, and you've got idols. I don't care that they worship God in that sense. If you base all your confidence on them, you've broken trust with God. And it takes nothing away from Deborah. She reprimands him immediately, gives the consequences, and then remains true to God's cause and goes. She's not worried at all about her life. The most tedious part of this thing is 70 miles of journeying, walking, because she already knows the victory is going to happen. But our trust must be in the Lord. And I, I, I park on this point with Barak a little bit, not to villainize him, because I think he's a, a great example of following a godly cause, because we're going to watch him follow through. However, we must see the slippery slope of trust. Your trust is not in somebody. It is locked on God, our creator and savior. And when our trust slips, we have idolatry. We have a problem. You might say, well, I don't trust anyone else but myself. You have slipped your trust down to you. Idolatry. Don't let your trust slip down. Now, thankfully, Barak's conditions of action end with this stumbling. We find through the rest of the conflict and beyond that he remained on task. I love the rest of the story. Considering a guy that says, I ain't moving unless you go with me, then the rest of the time, there's never another condition, and there's even an implication that Deborah just stays on the mountain and says, get down there and take care of it, and never does he ask. He remained on task. He followed through without hesitation. <coughs> Let me give you a summary of it. He rounds up the troops. He attacks Sisera in the plains where his chariots would have had the advantage, trusting God to deliver the enemy into their hands, which God does causing the Kishon River to overflow and takes out the advantage of Sisera's chariots. He pursues the army of Sisera. He pursues Sisera himself, who, by the way, runs in a different direction. Talk about a general who needed his army behind him to be confident because when things went south, the army's fleeting and getting slaughtered because that's what would have happened. They would have killed every soldier that fought for Jabin. And what does Sisera do? He goes the opposite direction so he can loop around. Get a little idea of Sisera's character, right? He's a little petty tyrant that had power due to the force behind him. Barak pursues the soldiers. One of the reasons he would have been a little slower getting to Sisera. And then I think this is what fascinates me. He completes the defeat of Jabin, king of Hazor. This is verse 24, the first part of chapter 4, uh, chapter 4, 24. It says, And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Jabin was not in this battle at all. In other words, Barak finished the job. Who had oppressed Israel? King Jabin. He's the leader. Sisera is his captain, his general. They kill Sisera, but Barak doesn't quit what happened. He ends up being that picture of faithfulness. I want to read Hebrews eleven thirty two just so you can hear it. It says, and what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. In other words, 
What does God want us to remember about Barak? Faithfulness. What was he faithful to? God's cause. He finished what God sent him out to do. Did he stumble? He most definitely did. Yet he comes through mightily in faith. He's a man committed to God's cause, ready to serve his Lord, ready to act in obedience in God's timing. Same question. Does that describe you? Are you committed to God's cause? And then I put in parentheses, and it's really a reminder for me, God's cause, not yours. Are you committed to what God wants to do? Ready to serve when God's opportunity opens up for you. And don't forget this about Barak. 20 years of oppression, 20 years of under the thumb of heavy, mighty oppression that's designed to break your soul. And when God called, he did react. Now, before we close, we have to take a look at Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. What about her? How do you look at her actions? I would say I would never fall asleep in her tent, but that's just, just a word of caution, you know? Keep your eyes open. Uh, many people have interesting outlooks here, and I think they miss Scripture when they come up with them. One of them is that she was opportunistic, that here is a woman that saw that Israel's winning, so she decides to side with Israel in this moment. Some think of her trickery <coughs> and falter for what she does. Uh, I think that that misses what God's word says about her. Judges 5.24 says, Blessed above women shall Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite be. Blessed shall she be above women in the tent of her nomadic group that's there. And that's not woven in the song for nothing. Here's some critical facts that lead us to the lesson she teaches us, because she teaches us a very critical lesson. Uh, Her husband had agreement with King Jabin. Uh, It was possibly an economical one. Kenites were known to be smiths. He is not where he's normally at. He's supposed to be south, further south. And, and actually, his family has moved north. Uh, they're smiths. They work with metal. And I put here, did he go for a good maintenance gig? I don't know. There's 900 chariots of iron that need to be worked with. Um, there could have been other reasons. However, he has an agreement in place with the king of Hazor, the guy that's ruled for 20 years this region. She makes a tough choice that goes against that agreement, which would have gone in the face of her culture, in the face of everything she would know. As the wife, if her husband is not there, she is supposed to extend the agreement that her husband has. She is supposed to host him. She is supposed to help him. She's supposed to do everything that's set in place. What does she end up doing? She strikes dead the commander and sides with Israel. And I put here, and I'm going to repeat it multiple times, Jael was loyal to God's people. As Leon Wood notes, the decision was not easy, but how she made it is obvious. She chose to side with Israel. And I put here, what does she teach us? She teaches what it means to be loyal to God's people, regardless of economics or benefits. And I'm going to remind you of the benefits. You're in an oppressed area of land. And the person who is the oppressor has given you a pass saying no one oppresses you. No one bothers you. You live your life. You can prosper in this time. I don't know how long they lived there. Scripture doesn't tell us. But I want you to realize as she watches this guy go to sleep, as she gets some milk, as she sets it up, which is what she was supposed to do from her culture and from the agreement that's in place, when she decides to pick a tent peg up, and slam it through his skull, because that's what she did, and pin him to the ground, she made a very tough choice, but it's because she 
was risking it all to be loyal to God's people. There's multiple applications here. It's often not in a broad scope popular to side with Israel. It doesn't mean Israel is always doing what's right. I'm not even getting into that. What does she teach you on the broad scale? I always side with Israel. Why? Because they're God's chosen people. And we're supposed to read scripture, find anyone that God uses to punish Israel and he punishes them. So on a broad scope, as you're looking at the nation of Israel and God's people, he has a work that he's going to finish with them. It's always good to be loyal to those people. But then let me broaden this out as we talk about God's people, because we're God's people. We are his church. He has redeemed us. And here's a, a, a question to think about. Are we loyal to his church, would we do the same? And I want you to recognize she's not being opportunistic. She took a gamble. She took a risk, and she risked everything her husband had worked for to have freedom in that region. Why? To be loyal to God's people. And I'm afraid that too often, as his church, we would sell the church out for a dollar. And she was willing to risk everything. Deborah and company confront us with the question of who do we serve? And every one of them, you notice that, right? Because she served God and she's going to give his word. And Barak is tied to, to his cause. And Jael is loyal to his people, confronts us with the idea of who do we serve? <clears throat> Are we committed to what God desires? Committed to being connected to him? Focused on his work? Or do our lives follow our chosen path? Are we following what God wants? Or are we following what we want? Do we speak his words? Do we connect to his concerns? Are we passionate and ready for his cause? Are we loyal to his church? And is his glory our priority?